0: Simon. Hello! Hey Simon! <laughs> Hello. Hey Simon, it's Skylar! Hey doing? Simon! Hello Simon! Hello. What's up Simon?
1: Hello. Simon. How are you doing? Hey! Hello! Hey, ah. Simon! Hello Simon! <laughs> Hello Simon! Hello, my name is Simon Brooks and I am the host of Conversations with Storytellers. This will be the last episode of the season while I meet and chat with other amazing storytellers. Wisdom and folk tales from our elders, a meeting with professional storytellers. After the passing of some great storytellers, I decided I wanted to interview some of the elders in the community of traditional storytelling. Some will tell us their favourite stories, others share their thoughts on our profession. All of them share gems of wisdom. Welcome to the Conversations with Storytellers podcast. Mulberry Birch is another dancer and theatre artist, has studied a lot and has a remarkable and unshakable sense of humour. I first discovered Milbury's work for myself shortly after the falling of Twin Towers of 9-11 in 2001. She had made a CD to help heal called Making the Heart Whole Again. We talk on this podcast briefly about the Gula people, those taken by force from their homes in Angola to work on the rice plantations of South Carolina way back when. She's a Grammy nominee, wait till you hear who she was up against, if not sharing the table with and also a scholar and an artist. So her wit is sharp. We had a great time. I hope you do too. Please enjoy this episode with Milbury Birch. Uh, Milbury, thanks very much indeed for uh, doing this interview. Um, I really, really appreciate it a lot. So do you still live in Missouri? No. Okay. So where do you live
0: now? Uh, As of early August 2018, Mm -hmm. I live in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Okay. which is where my husband and children and I lived 16 years ago before we moved to Missouri, okay. uh, having gone there from California so that my husband could get his Ph.D. at UNC. Uh-huh. And then he got a teaching job at the University of Missouri, and that's what took us there okay. and allowed me to back into a Ph.D. program while there and then teach for a while for the university, and then I left last year.
1: Right. Because you, when when did you get your PhD?
0: Two
1: thousand fourteen. Okay, and that and you did the adjuncting professorship.
0: I was uh, I was recruited by uh, the graduate school to teach in a program called um, Communication and American Classroom Culture for international teaching assistants okay. who both needed some uh, schooling in how American classrooms are run, and some, uh, sometimes some coaching in some of the oral proficiency uh, difficulties they were having so that they could slow down or speed up or hit another syllable or uh, pronounce a word a certain way so that Missouri undergrads could understand them when they were teaching their classes.
1: Oh. So. And your so your PhD though is in
0: theater. in theater and performance studies, right?
1: So, so was it just the fact that you had the PhD that allowed you to get the the adjunct,
0: or was it? Well, the PhD helped because these were both masters and PhD students, so okay. it, it yes it did help. But actually, I had ridden for two hours on a shuttle from Columbia to the Kansas City airport with the woman who was uh, would come to hire me. And we talked for a long time about that. And she, I asked her if she would be a conversation partner with me when I got the PhD to start talking about what I might do. And she recruited um, me. Really she thought a storyteller would be a good listener. Yes. And that's what was needed, was listening closely to these students to identify the, the things that might be hard for an American undergrad to decode and understand. Yeah.
1: That's, that's really cool, because I don't think people realize that storytelling is about listening as much as it is about telling a story.
0: Yes, I agree. But I think it's the most important skill we can have as a storyteller. Mm-hmm. Or maybe even as a human being.
1: Yes, as a human being. We can all do a listen a bit more. So where did you grow up?
0: Atlanta, Georgia.
1: Okay. So the South has been your, your home for a long time.
0: Yes, the, the South is my point of origin, though my mother was born in Canada and raised in Los Angeles, and my dad was born in Alabama and raised in Oakland, California, oh. and met in Washington, D.C. during World War II, and then married, and after the war came and set up housekeeping in Atlanta. So my roots were sort of a jumbled roots, like That's, so many of us.
1: Right, right, right. So um, what was it like growing up? for you. Do you have siblings?
0: I do. I was the youngest of three children and the only girl. Uh, I idolized my brothers and was probably a complete pain in the butt <laughs> to them. Um, it was... Uh, how was it growing up? You don't know what you don't know. Right. And uh, what I knew that we was that we lived on a dead-end street and it was a time in post-war America when uh, in the summer you left after breakfast and weren't expected back till lunchtime and then left after lunch and weren't expected back till supper. My mother had a Bermuda bell that for a time was in her car. It went ding, dong, and it carried for the entire street. And if you heard that and were a birch child, you knew that it was your mother saying, Okay, come check in. Let me know you're still breathing. That's funny. And uh, it was a cul de sac. It still is a cul de sac, but we called it a dead end street in my day. And uh, originally there was a baseball field on it. So that was a gathering place for Buzz Cut Boys in summer. And then that piece of property got bought and a house was built on it. So that building site became a gathering place for all children who wanted to explore the mysteries of construction. <laughs> and, well, it's uh, a giant
1: fort when a house is being built? Right,
0: it is. Lots of danger. Yes. Kind of wonderful. We have windows um,
1: down at the end of our road growing up as well.
0: And the street had been developed from property that belonged to the house at the beginning of the street that had a few outbuildings in it. And there were woods behind that house all the way down the street on one side, through my yard. So we looked across to the woods when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. And then the woods continued though there were houses on the other side. The woods were just set back into the backyard. Now there is a MARTA rapid transit center, you know, station that goes through those backwoods and eventually developers did come and take down the woods and build houses across from my mother's house. And I was back visiting at one point when there were some of those felled trees lying on a big tractor-trailer truck, and I got to put my hand on them and say thank you for being the forest of my imagination as a child. Oh,
1: that's cool. That's very cool. I think forests are, for me anyway, forests are really very magical places, especially when you're a kid.
0: And again, danger. Yeah,
1: and, uh, it's <laughs> yeah. true. It's true. So, um, were the storytellers in your family? other
0: than your brothers guy he it, I didn't? Well, um, what I am fond of saying is that my grandfather, my father, and my brothers all became salesmen. (laughs) So the glib tongue was pretty serious uh, affect in that side of my family. My grandmother placed fairy tale books in my hands starting about year year four. And uh, we were a great family of readers. So Uh, I just never got over the fairy tales. I don't think I was as aware of family stories. I actually have a performance called In the Family Way, Generations of Stories that I wrote in the wake of my father's passing in 1990 that is its own kind of sermon on storytelling. And uh, talked about not realizing my dad was a storyteller because the family story is familiar enough. It's like the air around you. Mm -hmm. You're not aware you're breathing it in. But within five minutes of meeting my father, the man who would become my husband said, you never told me he was a storyteller. So I thought, oh, yeah. There are certain stories you hear repeatedly, some of which end up having sort of secret seeds in them that if you don't ask what more, you never find out what's really blooming in that tale. And a lot of stories I didn't hear because he was... um, a man of his generation, and uh, there were certain kinds of things he didn't talk about with his daughter around. Oh,
1: okay. All right. Did you did you get the opportunity to get some of those seeds out and plant them?
0: I did. Um, he, he, uh, he loved stories about wild animals, encounters with wild animals, and um, people who taught funny stories. So, you know, we heard about people in the Army uh-huh. who talked funny, and we heard about his encounter Actually, I'm not sure I heard this story until his funeral. One one of my brothers told it. Um, my dad was involved in the building of the Blue Ridge Parkway because he was in uh, associated with construction equipment. That's what, what his business was. Okay. And uh, according to the tale, one night, um, you know, these young men who were on this job far from home have nothing to do, so they thought they'd go catch a bear. So they <laughs> they bought this big. Pot of honey, and they went up on the unfinished parkway, and they took the honey and kind of poured it on the ground into the trunk, left the trunk open, and sat in the car. I'm think thinking probably drinking, feeling like the car will go down if a bear gets in the back. And right. sure enough, after some time, the car went down. And the plan was to run around and slam the trunk, and they'd have a bear.
1: Right.
0: But the bear didn't appreciate being shut in the trunk. So it came through the back seat into the cab of the car. And of course, then they all fled. And as far as I know, no one died in this encounter. But that was a tale that he had told my brothers that I heard after his death. Um, but the one we grew up hearing was that he had—he uh, was at Fort Benning, Georgia, in, in Columbus, and um, not far from the Chattahoochee River, which runs along the Georgia-Alabama line. And he worked for the, uh, he was in the Army Corps of Engineers. So the Corps of Engineers created, created uh, jungle airstrips and pontoon river crossings, that kind of thing. So oh, that's okay. what he was learning to do so that when he was in the China-Burma-India theater of the war, that's what he was part of. Nice. But he talked about being in, a, in two boats on the Chattahoochee River with his little red-headed captain from Tidewater, Virginia named Johnny Monger, and he laughed over Monger's Tidewater accent. And as they're going along, it had been raining, and the river was quite high, and there was a raccoon that was stranded on a branch over the river, and it dropped into Johnny Monger's boat, which created this comical scene for my father to watch of this man trying to outmaneuver this sort of bedraggled but determined raccoon that wanted the boat you know basically, yeah, basically yeah. and so he's kind of jumping around and Johnny Monger was shouting get out get out get out of the boot you know in his Tidewater accent and eventually I think he grabbed a branch and waited for my father to come and rescue him I think the raccoon got the other boat as far as the <laughs> myth is told and so finally one day when I was an adult and already identifying as a storyteller I said to him well what were you doing on the river, you know, it takes more than two men to build a pontoon bridge. And that's when he said that despite the rain, maneuvers had been held, and there was a troop of paratroopers who looked down and saw the swollen yellow river and thought it was a clay road. And some of the soldiers jumping hit the river and got tangled in their parachutes and drowned. Oh my God. And he and Johnny Monger were collecting the bodies of young soldiers out of the river. So, in this comical story was the secret seat of tragedy.
1: Yeah.
0: Which led me to think that it was that story that had been asking to be told all along. The men didn't come back from the war and talk to people who hadn't been there about it.
1: They still don't. Right. Uh,
0: But now there are women, too, who aren't doing it.
1: Right. Right. So. So what, what drew you to telling stories? What was your first job? Let's
0: change that question. What was your first job? Uh, my first job was working in the bookkeeping department of my father's business. As soon as we hit 16, we all went to work in my dad's office. My, dad, my brothers worked in the shop helping to serve, learn to service the equipment. Mm-hmm. And I was sent upstairs to bookkeeping where there were two ladies... Who smoked constantly and had these bouffant hairdos that started about three feet high the day they came back from the, you know, hairdresser, and then over the course of the next two weeks would sort of begin to deflate little by little until, right. you know, then they'd go back and they'd be on high again. And I had long, heavy hair. And my hair would absorb all the cigarette smoke, so I was like the office air freshener as oh, far as I could geez, tell. And I would you know I would do numbers, I would set up a little adding machine, and you know I was their gopher, but I think my chief job was to absorb all <laughs> of the smoke. <laughs> I'm
1: sorry to hear that. So how did you get from from bookkeeping to storytelling?
0: Well, first, I had uh, always been uh, I think a natural ham, acting out a lot of stories. My Barbies went through a lot because I read, read the comic papers and I watched the Saturday afternoon horror humor TV shows that were on Saturday, and so my Barbies were always encountering. Oh, and my brothers built monster models. And and so then, if there, if an arm fell off the Wolfman, then I would take it and put it in the haunted house that my Barbie had to go into. Well, I think sometimes they were over their models. I mean, once you make it, it's like, what do you do? Hmm? If you play with it, it's a doll. No, you know, so you're not going to do that. So um, I do remember a werewolf arm that I had on a tray, a little miniature tray, and. And then I got some wire, probably from a failed little radio set that they had, and I wired it to a Band-Aid box, which was the computer that was going to bring the werewolf arm alive because of things like Donovan's brain that I was watching on TV or that kind of thing. And the Phantom, I remember reading the Phantom comic strips in the Sunday papers, and he was always meeting thousand-year-old women, you know, who couldn't stand in front of the sun, or they'd turn into ashes and stuff. So I decided to freeze my Barbie doll so that my Ken doll could meet and date a prehistoric woman. And it was the first time I remember ever setting an alarm. I set my alarm for 5 AM because I had put Barbie in a in a plastic shoe box, which were popular at the time, and I'd put it, she floats, you know, so. So I could only fill it up halfway because she was floating at the top of it. And I put her in the freezer downstairs. At 5 o'clock I got up and I took her and I filled the rest of the water up so she could be totally encased and put it back in. Ah. Went to bed and the next morning I plopped her like a giant ice cube out in the leery open in the backyard. And, you know, Ken comes along and then I had to wait for her to melt. You know, it's like, okay, now what? You know, this is not much of a relationship.
1: <laughs> so Ken wasn't... Clever enough to think he
0: didn't bring an ice back. pick.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he didn't bring an ice pick, but you know, I think that was probably a modern version of seeing a girl in a glass casket. I mean, yeah,
1: right.
0: who 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 kisses somebody who's in a casket? I know, right? <laughs> I was like, what kind of relationship is that exactly? But um, so I was already doing a lot of creative play and dramatic play mm-hmm. as a child. And I was a dancer. I studied ballet. And uh, when I got to high school in eighth grade, we had sub-freshmen. That just seems so cruel somehow. Now <laughs> you think about calling a class of students, you're a sub-freshman. Yeah, like, right. Go in the basement now. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we'll see you in a year. We feed you a weekend. Right. <laughs> there was uh, a theater called the Academy Theater, in Atlanta, and they sent artists into the schools. So we had an assembly where they must have put on some short play, and then they came to talk to us in our English classes. And it was like, whoa, there's other people who do this acting out stuff. Whoa. So I got very involved in the drama club as a student, and um. My high school girl group came together in the summer after seventh grade in that transition from grammar school into high school. We called ourselves the Fat Five because it was the 60s and, you know, women wanted to be thin and we were ironic. Okay. <laughs> you know, our bodies were starting to change and it's like, well, is that fat? You know, so we called ourselves a Fat Five. And one I had gone through grammar school with Mary Davis now, and uh, the summer before eighth grade, I was sent to something called accelerated summer school, which was for smart kids. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, if I'm so smart, why do I have to yeah. go to summer school? Why well, this seems like a bad thing? And it's a trick. Uh, right, it's a trick. So there I met Sue and Ruth, who had come from different grammar schools, so I wouldn't have known them. And mm-hmm. we became good buds. And then Roxanne moved on to the street I lived on, and there were five of us. And we got involved in the drama club and did summer theater things and had our own dramatic lives as we began to come of age. And are still dear friends, actually, we... We went to Hawaii for our 50th birthday year. Fat four of us, fat four of the fat five got to Hawaii, and we called it Hawaii Fat Five-O. <laughs> uh, so we, we try and we're due for another gathering. We haven't gotten together since our 60th, so we, we've kind of let 65 sort of skim on past, but we, we figure we'll, we'll hit it soon we'll hit another gathering soon. So now we're in Los Angeles, Santa Fe, Atlanta, Beaufort <coughs> and me now I'm in Beaufort South Carolina and me I'm in North Carolina. So so that what you know we we encouraged each other. We were very involved in that. So I was used to being on stage and identifying as a creative, I guess, and writing I wrote as a young person and
1: because you've written plays, so were you writing plays then?
0: I was. I wrote picture? a screenplay for Kurt Russell. You did not. I did, did when I was it? about fourteen years old. No, I don't think <laughs> he. Ever, I don't think it ever got to his agent, <laughs> but he was in several Disney movies, and I was at, utterly smitten. So one of the first things I wrote was a screenplay. I actually don't remember what it was about, and it hasn't surfaced. Some of that material has surfaced. I also did a lot of cartooning. I was following the steps of the Phantom. I had the woman who sees the sun turning into a, you know, dust, and making fun of Nancy Drew. I had some stuff making fun of Nancy Drew, and I would do these. I would cartoon uh, takeoffs on films. So I did one on Barbarella, and I did one on the Isadora film that came out when I was a young woman. That I think. Um, Vanessa Redgrave played Isadora Duncan in that, so I did one. I can I could lay my hands on that today. I think if I dug far enough into some papers at my house, Um, and my friends and I, we just thought you know we we just thought we were hilarious, and we we wrote some of the plays we were in in high school and things like that. So we were just we supported each other in our various ways. And in college, I discovered modern dance and. Mime. I had a mime teacher who had been a Doris Humphrey dancer and uh, years before, and she was just coming back to Atlanta. And I saw a picture of her. At that point, my college sweetheart lived close to the JCC, the Jewish Community Center. And though he and his roommates were not Jewish, they had memberships there because there was a gym and a swimming pool and stuff. And I remember when I was uh, in my second year of college, at that point, I was going to Georgia State University, and I happened to go over to my boyfriend's house, and here was a picture of a newsletter from the JCC with a woman in mime, in in whiteface as a mime. And my first year of college, which I'd spent in Florida, I had gone to see Marcel Marceau perform. You know, he was about two inches tall, considering yeah. where my seats were. But I, and I'm sure I saw him on Ed Sullivan. I was very moved by gesture. I was. Deeply moved by what he did. But I didn't think anybody else do it. did it. You don't see Marceau and think, oh, I can do that, you know. But that second year of college, I happened to go see this troupe called the Mad Mountain Mime Troupe. And it was a musician and two male mimes. And it was a coffee house. And they were as close to me as you are sitting, you know, four feet away. And it's like, oh, people do this. And so I remember going back to the venue when they were going to perform again to ask if they would teach me. And they said no. And that was the end of that. But then this newsletter appeared with a woman. And I clutched it to my bosom and went to my modern dance class at Georgia State University and showed it to my dance teacher. She said, oh, I know her. My dance teacher said, I I know her. She's really nice. You should call her. Go in my office right now and call her. So I called her and said, I want to study mime. She said, well, if I had five students, I'd teach a class. So me and four of my friends called her up in about a week and began to study with her. And by the time I had finished college, she had started a mime and dance troupe that I performed for and choreographed for. And one of my biggest pieces before I left the troupe was the memo tour. Uh, based on the Theseus and the Minotaur legend, except that in my piece, the Mimotaur was female. So Theseus gets in there and discovers this female at the heart of the labyrinth. So, you know, my feminist tendencies, my, as, as Bill Harley would say, my feminist underwear was showing <laughs> from an early age. Um, so... <laughs> So, I am actually answering your question. It just takes a while to get there. So, uh, in college, I had... I would have been a natural English major. But I knew that I would have literature all my life.
1: Right.
0: And I had this sort of Svengali my first year of college. There were a lot of things that were wrong with that relationship. But he did say to me, when else will you have... Uh, uh, four years of leisure time. That was clearly spoken by someone whose father was paying for college, as was mine. He said, when else will you have four years of leisure time to study anything you want? And I thought, well, that makes sense. I should study things I would never encounter. Mm -hmm. So by the time I got to Duke, which is where I finished, finally finished my college education in part, because my best friend had gone there to begin with, so I'd visited her a lot, and uh, by then, I'd been humbled by leaving several colleges and selling pantyhose, and so I was ready to go to college, and my parents were still willing to pay for me to do it. Um, I encountered this professor who was teaching what I was really interested in what was film and performance. So I was dancing there, and he was teaching his name, his name is David Palance, and he was teaching um, politics in the media, and it was a uh, media literacy really a lot about how do you read what you're seeing and what are the questions you should ask about what you're seeing and i just fell in love with that topic and with him pretty much and i had a terrible crush on him he was very it was very kind <laughs> and appropriate and his children would always his children were four and would squirm at our, you know at his feet when we would go, I'd go to office meetings and his wife you know She was this presence. I say she dressed like a Unitarian (laughs) in this um, amazing sort of modern frock with a leather belt and sandals. It was like, oh, she is so cool. (laughs) She looks like she's in a Scandinavian film, you know, kind of thing. She had had started the Free Water Film Society at Duke. And this not only put on film screenings but you could apply to make a movie and they would provide you with the equipment and maybe some of the film I can't remember now if you had about yourself and so I made my first movie in college while also choreographing dances that were heavy on irony and and my movie was a foreign film it was called uh, Last Tentacle in Paris and film
1: uh, made in the U.S.
0: Though I don't speak French, I did have a friend translate the script, and we recorded it in French. <laughs> so uh, you know, I w- it was another very creative time, and I got out of uh, college, having left behind working in the bookkeeping te- department, being a waitress for summers. Uh, And I uh, came home from college ready to be a filmmaker. I was like, okay, I'll perform with Company K, you know, mime and dance, and I'll make movies. But, you know, no one was going to look at Last Tentacle in Paris and hire me like that. (laughs) For one thing, nobody told me that the sound is 15 frames, 16 frames ahead of the picture. So uh, (laughs) the the sound, which was not synced to begin with, was way not synced. (laughs) in my movie, but it's actually quite hilarious. I still love to, to, to watch it. And it debuted with um, Truffaut's Day for Night in the Free Water Film Society. Uh, and I still remember the review, which said, poorly acted, poorly directed, poorly edited, poorly written, this film is at least consistent. <laughs> That was right up there with being named 24 of the 40 worst-dressed people at the Grammys the year I was there. So there are certain... You were uh, not. Really? I was. I was on a list with Cher, Seal, and Honey Boy Edwards. When am I ever going to be on a list with well, them yeah. again?
1: So So you can take that. Yeah, I can take it.
0: So um, sometimes you just have to have a sense of humor. Yes, yeah, it's
1: true.
0: Katie Rydell said to me, a uh, storyteller now in Portland, but I knew her in California, Portland, Maine, um... Well, we're at that point in life when there's only one exam question left. Do you have a sense of humor? (laughs) So, happily, I've always had a sense of humor. And uh, my best friend in grammar school and I thought we were going to be stand-up comedians together. And when I met her again as an adult, she said, Well, you grew up to be what you always were, a storyteller. So that was very affirming in its own way. So I got to Atlanta. It's like, okay, time to work back as a a waitress, you know, because nobody is immediately hiring me on the strength of last uncle in Paris. But my mother was someone who would clip things out of the newspaper that might be of interest. And she handed me an ad about an organization called Women in Film that was meeting. And I went to the meeting and I met a woman who became my mentor and uh, somehow, found myself elevated to newsletter editor because nobody else wanted to do it. And she eventually hired me to be an intern. And actually, she hired me as a freelancer first, and then I spent a year as an intern. So I spent two years in the television, radio, audiovisual department of the Presbyterian Church in the U.S., which was in Atlanta. So my job was to write film strips and catalogs and voiceovers for films about various and sundry projects that the Presbyterian Church was doing in places like Babanga Zaire and Haiti and mm-hmm. those kind of places where one really wonders in the long run if good was done, yeah, right. <laughs> you know. So um, And I performed with Company K, and and I thought, okay, this is great, you know, I'm doing media doing my performance Fran and another woman and I began work on some documentary films one about meie our my mime teacher and okay. one about another older woman uh, who was a psychiatrist so I'm I'm living the dream but it's exhausting <laughs> you know doing both those things intensely film and performance and my best friend who graduated from Duke and eventually married and moved to Beaufort, South Carolina. I went to visit her and I was saying, you know, I'm trying to figure out if there's a way now for me to perform for a living and do film on the side, because I've been doing film for a living and performing on the side, and maybe I'll know what path I should follow.
1: That's
0: a good idea. And she brought me out a little clipping that she'd taken from the newspaper advertising a job uh, as a creative drama specialist in an arts and education program that was beginning in the county where she lived. And I went home and went to the library to find out what the heck creative drama was, because frankly, I had never heard the words, and found out, oh, you make stuff up. That's I've been doing that since I was a child. And so I auditioned for the job, and I got it. And I went to Beaufort, South Carolina, to be one of four artists. It was a biracial team being sent... All of us went to all of the grammar schools, but in the junior high and high schools, we went in biracial teams. What
1: year was
0: this? This was 1978. Okay. South Carolina was virtually the last state to begin, begin to think about integrating its school system. And Beaufort mm-hmm. County is on hundreds of islands. Hmm. And some of them aren't attached to anything else. so. There would be a community here and it was pretty much white, and a community there and was pretty much black. And so we would go in biracial teams into those communities. To, there was a dancer, a poet, a singer, and I was creative drama, drama slash mime. They, they gave me a slash to get my mime into it.
1: Multi
0: talented. And that is where. The librarian at the public library saw that I was, I was partnering with a wonderful, creative, native son of Beaufort County, George Chisholm was his name. He was my first performance partner, um, African-American, gay, and smart, funny, talented, great person to work with. And uh, so he would do mine with me, and I would do dance with him. And we would perform, and I wore my hair in a permanent at the time because I figured all the other women in the mime company that were funnier than me had curly hair. So I, I took one of my roommates who had naturally curly hair to the hairdresser. I said, make me look like her but taller. So I was wearing my hair curly. And with my olive skin, there were kids at the junior high on the ladies' island school who would debate whether I was black or white, which I took as a a great compliment because both of the kids wanted to claim me. That's nice. And as a child of the segregated South, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: it was a redemptive opportunity to work in a biracial team and to go into schools where there were kids of color who were still being kept essentially on the other side of the bridge. And one of our schools was 40 minutes motorboat ride from Hilton Head Island, which you would now find a very white elderly Gulf community before there was a bridge. It was a black community of descendants of enslaved Africans who had been brought from the rice coast of Africa to work the rice plantations in South Carolina and Georgia and a little bit in North Carolina. Um, But that, you know, it was already a white enclave for then and we would drive and park our car and go get in the motorboat and the motorboat would go across the water to Defusky Island. Defusky is probably Gullah shortening of the first key okay. of islands.
1: Okay.
0: And there is a two room schoolhouse there, kindergarten through eighth grade. Wow. And the principal and his wife were the two teachers. And that was one of our schools. And a man named Pat Conroy, who was quite a writer, southern writer, he's now gone, but he grew up in Beaufort, South Carolina, and he wrote a book called The Water is Wide about his year of teaching on the Fusky Island, and it became a movie called Conrack, which is Did what... Did
1: he write The Great Santini? Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right,
0: so I know that. He wrote The Prince of Tides. Actually, The Great Santini was being filmed while I lived in Beaufort, right down the street from where I was, <laughs> and I... Ended up going to the premiere, and Robert Duvall was
1: there. You didn't get a, a little part in it after all <laughs> this drama?
0: No, I didn't, actually. But I did uh, I did lend my rabbit suit to one of the drivers from the shoot who was going to a costume party. <laughs> and he used to park right outside my door. I don't even remember how it turned out. He knew I had a rabbit suit, but I did. I'm not going to ask how he knew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of scary to think about. <laughs> Because I'd lend it to other people, I think, and you may have seen it. So, um, in my second year there, uh, I had actually developed a community uh, troupe of people from both Buford Proper and Hilton Head, because I went back and forth. And these were folks with day jobs, but who were hams like me and wanted to do performance. And so I would choreograph poems by children from English-speaking countries around the world in a book called Miracles by Richard Lewis, a wonderful poet and editor. And we would take these poems and perform them as an ensemble. And uh, I wrote a little story called Snort Whiffle that was about change and otherness, I think, at one point. And the librarian the second year handed me this picture book by Vern Artema, Why Mosquitoes Buzz in People's Ears, a West African folktale, and said, I think you'd do a really great job with this after we'd been at her library. And it has award-winning illustrations by Leo and Diane Dillon, who were incredible Caldecott winning uh, artists. And
1: this is a picture book with a red cover.
0: Well, it's got an animal. Animal faces, graphics of animal faces. Okay.
1: All
0: right. um, you would recognize it if you saw it because yeah, it's I been everywhere. Right. Yeah. And one of the two community coordinators, there was an African American and a white community coordinator of our program the first year or so, and uh, one of them was a fabric artist, and she ended up making ten masks based on the pictures in the book. Uh-huh. And also, she threw her husband in the bargain. He was a waiter and a writer, and he was part of my troupe. So I choreographed the, sh- the story, at Why Mosquitoes Buzz in People's Ears, for five actors with ten masks. And we performed it all over Defusky Island, and we took it to uh, all over Beaufort County, and we took it to Defusky Island. And my mosquito, everybody played two animals, and my mosquito was a 75-year-old retired educator no way. Who was, so cool. who'd, who'd waited... Seven decades to become a mime. Oh, She was amazing. Eunice Jackson was her name. And so we recorded the story and moved silently on stage to perform it. And at the end of my two years there, uh, one of the remarkable things about that residency was that there were two weeks set aside each school year for you to go work on professional development. You were paid... To get better at what you did and I came to South Paris, Maine to study at the Celebration Barn with Tony Montanero and within seconds knew that I had been commuting back to Atlanta to work on the films within five minutes of being in Tony's class I knew I was a performer and that I needed to say to my filmmaking buddies this is yours, you can you have my permission to take the work we've been doing and do it without me Wow. And I ended up meeting someone who lived from Providence in Providence. And I fell in love and at the end of my second year in South Carolina, I packed up my little car and moved to Providence to be part of a vaudeville company, a new vaudeville company, a threesome, always a dangerous.
1: Yes,
0: you know, they're so unstable, yes. those things. Yeah. But um, none of the people from my troop, quit their day jobs and left their families to come with me to Rhode Island. So I had this story, Why Mosquitoes Buzz in People's Ears. And,
1: and that was
0: it. The two guys I worked with were not going to put on a leotard and tights. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I put the choreography on my body, and I started speaking the story.
1: Okay.
0: And I called it mime storytelling. And that when I said the word storytelling, boom, the world opened wide. I met Bill Harley, Len Cabral, Mark Levitt, Jay O'Callahan, Doug Littman, the whole Susan Klein,
1: East Coast gang,
0: and I thought, oh my God, this crossroads of language and gesture is where I want to live. And I never looked back.
1: That's really cool.
0: Well, I will say what I said. I told why mosquitoes buzz today in the children's sermon.
1: You said that earlier when we first and, got together,
0: yeah. And I used as the sermonizing part of my sermon before I told another story from a piece I'm working on now called "Stories at the Border," a sanctuary uh, at the border, a sanctuary of stories. So I'm starting to collect Central American stories to use in the same way that I'm doing this afternoon with tales from beyond the ban, or the same way I did with changing skins folk tales about gender identity and humanity so trying to use oral tradition stories to remind my listeners who look like me that there are people who don't look like us who have these remarkable stories and experiences that are being demonized in sound bites yeah and that we need to think more creatively and expansively about Our shared humanity. So when that librarian handed me that book, she did not say to me, Milbury, a great many of your students are descended from West Africa. Nor did I at that time allow myself to go to that place of understanding Mm -hmm. about who the Gullah people were. In Georgia, it's, it's Geechee, Gullah Geechee culture of people who were specifically stolen from the rice coast of Africa because they would know how to make rice plantations.
1: Because the rice plantations were failing here?
0: Mm-hmm. It was, it was a job that they didn't know how to do. Right. The, the, the people whose bright idea it was. And it was horrendous hard labor. So nobody wanted to do it either. And then, of course, because it was also serious mosquito ground The white people would get out of Dodge and go back to Atlanta or go inland or wherever it was to escape malaria. There weren't screens on the windows until the early 20th
1: century. Really? Wow.
0: And as it turned out, a good many of the Africans had sickle cell anemia, which makes makes you not get malaria. Okay. You suffer in a different way, but you don't die of malaria.
1: Wow.
0: And so many of these populations of folks who came as skilled planters, as well as any other thing, but that didn't matter, you know, right,
1: right.
0: Um, were in some ways left alone and contained in these places. And so their culture, there was a cultural exchange never, that survived.
1: Right. It never went away. Right. It wasn't done to die do until.
0: And uh, so it was lucky happenstance that this woman handed me this book and that I was bold enough to go outside the European fairy tales that I had grown up with and began to see and had a chance to work with people of color for the first time in my life Mm -hmm. that there were worlds, universes I knew nothing about. Yeah. And stories are the ones that told me that. Right. And finding stories from the places that my students were from became part of my life from the word go. Yeah. And when I got to Rhode Island, I had opportunities to tell stories to immigrant kids. And I asked, well, where are the kids from, so I can bring stories that they might recognize. Well, and that just became yeah. what I did. And it has been such an enrichment to my life and understanding of what it means to be human yeah. that I can't imagine a life without those stories.
1: Yeah, I can't either. I mean, there's, there's I don't know, there, we could talk about this all day, but yeah.
0: In the first Gulf War, I was in California, and there was a man named Bob Jenkins who taught at that point theater in, in at San Jose State and was a storyteller. And his response to the first Gulf War was to tell stories only from the places that we were in conflict with that most of us knew nothing about. And I was so deeply moved by his decision to do that that when 9-11 happened. I started looking for stories from Afghanistan, I started looking for stories eventually from Iraq, you know, and and looking for stories of peace and reconciliation, because I wanted to put those stories into the world alongside the terrible things we were hearing, you know, through the media. And
1: that's that's where the CD came from, Mm -hmm. Making the
0: Heart Pop. Yes. And Bill Ferris, who is has just retired from UNC's Folklorist, just got a Lifetime Achievement Award in the last couple of years from the American Folklore Society, ran the NEH for a while, the National Endowment for Humanities, has just had uh, established a Center for the Study of Southern Culture at Ole Miss, established something similar at, at UNC in his speech when he got the lifetime achievement, he said folklore allows you to go in at the foundation of respect and understanding.
1: Wow, that's a strong statement. I like that. So. Yeah, that's a really good statement. I like that. So that's how you became a Mhm. <laughs> that's a great route. You've, so from listening to what you've just been saying you've been a producer you've produced a lot of stuff you produced a dance company, you produced mine, you produced... You've done a whole bunch of producing. And
0: and I actually ran a storytelling series in California when we moved out there so that every year and a half or so when I had a new show, I'd have an audience. You know. oh, sneaky. So I would. <laughs> I was working for a good bit of the time as an artist-in-residence and I could bring people in as guest artists. I was working with the Pasadena Library and I'd give them $100 towards having that artist go do something at the library. And then I you know, put them in my series. So I got to invite my friends to come and do performances. And then when I had a performance, I would do something. And it was great to <clears throat> curate uh, a series. And, and I did it for several years. We, we ended up stopping, uh, I think, the year my oldest child was about two. And my husband took a buyout from the LA Times, and I realized we were funding the, the series, and we'd uh, right. maybe spend $1,000 and make back $900. It's you know? yes. <laughs> like it was not a money-making venture. But when I stopped doing that, I started working with a collective of storytellers. And the Beverly Hills Library gave us a home to do a concert series just you know, with us as a group. And uh, Bill Harley and Lynn. Cabral and Mark Levitt and Sparky Davis, who was a puppeteer, is a puppeteer, Marilyn Mearden, who was a community theater actress, and Ramona Bass, who was the wife of a man who was teaching theater in the um, at Brown University, mm-hmm. we came together and said, we all tell stories for kids, but wouldn't it be great to take the model of storytellers in concert that Jay O'Callaghan and the others were doing in Cambridge and do that in Providence. So we started doing group concerts together for adult audiences. So that was my one of my earliest storytelling producing things was to, to be part of that group that was putting on so, concerts.
1: So did you meet Bill and, and Len and those guys
0: out, out west? No. I, I moved from uh, Chapel Hill, Oh, excuse me. It's from Beaufort, South Carolina to Providence, Rhode Island, and I met them there. Okay. So I lived there for eight years, and that's where I met my similarly expatriate husband who was, had moved from Mississippi and was a reporter for the Providence Journal. Then we got married, yeah. and we moved to California and had our kids there. And then we came back to North Carolina because he got a late-breaking Ph.D. and then got a job in Missouri, mm-hmm. and so we moved there. So yeah. I'm Bill and Len and I essentially grew up as storytellers together
1: right when you decided that, when you knew that that was what you wanted to do mm-hmm. and how long you were in providence for, how for 8 long? years okay. uh,
0: so from 1980 to 1988 and then we moved to Pasadena and we were there till 99 and we came to Chapel Hill from 99 to 2003 and then in 2003 we moved to Columbia Missouri and that's where I left last summer though my husband continued to teach for a year so we were a commuter couple Ooh. Tedious.
1: Yes. I <laughs> I've, I've met a few other people that have done that. Mm-hmm. Do you have any favorite stories from your childhood?
0: You mean in terms of stories I heard or stories I lived?
1: Stories you heard, like Foggy Fraser?
0: I had this incredible golden book of fairy tales that uh, had such incredible illustrations in it that even though the... In my opinion, the stories were told rather clunkily. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. The
0: illustrations were like dive in and never get out. I'm going to see if I can pull up the illustrator's name. A woman named Terry Windling, who does, who is a wonderful artist and storyteller. She lives in the UK, actually. Good friend of Jane Yolen's.
1: Yeah. She's done a lot of. Folk and fantasy stuff. Yes, she's she a, has. She's a really good writer.
0: And I read an essay of hers online where she talked about the same picture book and the same artist who just blew our minds. Oh. So I'm a storyteller in part because of these uh, uh, illustrations in this book, and she's an artist for that reason, too. We might
1: have that book at home.
0: There was actually a second one which I never knew I got from my kids. Golden Book of Fairy Tales. Okay, let's see. Uh, Adrian Segur. S-E-G-U-R. Just amazing stories. Uh, uh, images. images. M- more, and, and they were Hans Christian Andersen stories. They were Hansel and Gretel. Mm-hmm. There was one, Hiroshima and the Turtle. There was one sort of inexplicable Japanese story in the middle of it all. And I say this in the show that I wrote after my father's passing, that... that uh, There were these beautiful princesses trapped by briars and bars, and they had incredibly coiffed golden hair, bejeweled in impossible ways. And their boyfriends were always um, enchanted princes, you know, who struck jewels from the snow with their deer hooves. or were, uh, you know, beasts lying in a garden dying of neglect. And I said, those books, that that book set my early personal standard for romance and beauty. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, it was problematic, as it is, you know, when you have nothing but entrapped and imprisoned and sleepy uh, females waiting to be rescued.
1: Yes. The block of ice earlier. (laughs) Yes. Yes. It speaks
0: volumes. (laughs) So for me, when I was in Providence, Rhode Island, and I was doing a lot of summer library work, as was Bill and Len, et cetera, et cetera, a book fell off a library shelf at me. I was walking by and the book threw itself at me, and you know when you're a storyteller and a book comes at you yeah, like I that. It up. I picked it up. It was Jane Yolen's picture book, Sleeping Ugly, which is taking the Sleeping Beauty story and turning it on Jane's ear. Yes. And I thought I have been looking for this story my whole life. Mm. And I started telling it. This would have been nineteen eighty four. And so four years into being in New England. And uh, that year, at Christmas, my parents gave me a copy of the book. Nice. <laughs> and that spring, mm-hmm. Jane was at Sharing the Fire, the New England Storytelling Conference. Right. So I went up to her and I said, when I'm a worm. You, when you please sign my book. I've been telling your story. Is it okay? You know? And she said, I mean, she probably said what she says online. Just don't change my endings. And she and I were in a swap group later that weekend. And she said, she leaned over and said, why don't you tell my story?
1: I said, okay. That must have been a bit
0: intimidating. (laughs) It was. It was. And I noticed that it was on a stage somewhere at Leslie College, I guess, and there was a grand piano pushed sort of towards the back of the curtain. And I noticed that she got up and sort of went around to the far side of the grand piano like she could slip into the wings and disappear if I was just terrible. And she loved it. Nice. And that started our friendship and mentorship and... uh, she has, you know, I've recorded numerous recordings with her stories on no it.
1: Whole
0: uh, I have two whole CDs of hers, and then I have one that's half her and half me, and then I have at least two others that have, uh, you know, at least one story of her. And I just I saw her on this journey. It's been been a few years since I had seen her last, and part of this whole tour is to see beloved friends, particularly ones who just turned 80 as Jane has done and she has also encouraged me enormously in my writing and published some of my work and sent some of my work to other people who published it so uh, that was an incredible happenstance to have that book yeah, just right. leap out at me Wow! because that is such an important on so many levels and precious relationship to have discovered in Nineteen
1: eighty four. Yeah, right. To be mentored by Jane Yolen is mm-hmm. pretty. What the
0: heck was that? <laughs> It sounded like something rolling. No, it's something. Or some a dragon. Master. It's it's either something <laughs> rolling.
1: Yeah. Or a dragon.
0: So I would Sorry. say Sleeping Ugly is one of my favorite stories, but that was not from childhood. Oh, I was telling you about this book, Golden yes. Book of Fairy Tales yes, yeah. In some cases, in. S- some of the drawings made me a little crazy, and I was an, I was annoyed by what Hansel and Gretel looked like. I remember that I was no, annoyed that they these two children and what the what the witch looked like. But I think that's probably the earliest feminist fairy tale I've ever encountered because it is Gretel who saves yes, her brother it is. and herself, Right. and it certainly stuck with me. And she that she got to do something. <laughs> right,
1: and she also, she put herself in great danger. so. Yes.
0: yeah. I do know that that one stuck with me. I loved the colored fairy books that Andrew Lang produced.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I loved the library, the, the school library, and my grandmother kept giving me books. So we had Chinese fairy tales. We had the Arabian Nights. I mean, they were family-friendly versions of the, uh, the Arabian Nights. One. Um n- no, this was an illustrated, this was an illustrated one. So you did get this incredible these incredible visuals. Uh, different illustrator but still just gorgeous pictures of a world I didn't know.
1: Yeah
0: you know So those came early, relatively early in my life. Africa was new by the you know in, that was not covered in uh, many of the, the things that I saw along the way. My grandmother gave me books by a writer whose name was Joan Aiken. Yes. And she was a British writer, though. Her, husband, her father was an American poet. Oh, I didn't know
1: that. Mm-hmm.
0: Conrad Aiken. Oh. And she gave me The Wolves of Willoughby Chase. Yeah. I was completely absorbed by that book to the point that I took it into my public school library and I told the librarian she needed to get the book that was like the first time I ever gave a direction to an adult <laughs> was based on Joan Aiken's book. So I read Wolves of Willoughby Chase and Blackhearts and Battersea and maybe that's where I left off for the moment, yes. And there was a central character, though an annoying one, in *Black Hearts and Battersea who was lost overboard. And then I didn't get any more of those books from my grandmother. And I read the next book in the series like 20 years later and finally hauled that poor waterlogged child out of the water. And so the first time I went to uh, England, I actually was in touch with her and was trying to arrange to get on a bus and go meet her. But her husband was quite ill, and so she decided that it was better if I didn't come. And then she passed away in the next year or two, so I never got to meet her. Uh, I did contact her to see if I could tell. So I rediscovered her. You know, it's like, oh my God, I so loved her books. And I would go to the library and I'd get her collections, her strange collections of original, you know fairy tale and fantasy books and there is one called she was afraid of upstairs that just moved me so deeply and I told it once and discovered that I knew so little about it that I really needed to not tell it again for a while but I had reached out to her to see if I could record it at some point and she was excited about it but her agent said no and she, she she wrote back to me and said, Well, there's no use having a dog if you're going to do your own barking. So if my agent says no, then, you know, let's not do this for now. Yeah. And I would love to return to that story because the premise is this little girl was always terrified to go upstairs. And she lived in a little two-story house with her parents. But going up to get a hairbrush for her mother was almost you know, put her into apoplexy. And then the government decides to tear down those houses and sends them to a council block, you know. And she faints dead away in a, you know, going up in an elevator. It's like this child is really in danger. And um, so there's this moment when they're traveling with her and she's, has a fever and they realize they can't go any further with this child who has I think it's as a result of having been taken in the elevator when they went to try out the council block you know Mm -hmm. and they stop at this little farm and they knock at the door and old man comes out and they realize the bottom part of the house is the barn and his living part is upstairs but she's unconscious you know pretty much Mm -hmm. or delirious and they take her up and settle her and The man comes to her bedside and says, there's no reason to be afraid. You're going to just open a door and step to the other side. It'll be like going in another room. And she dies peacefully upstairs. Mm. And I was so moved. By that portrayal of being truthful with a child.
1: Yeah.
0: But also not... Uh, also finding language to talk about death.
1: Yeah. In a way that a child could understand. Yes.
0: and Or that any of us could understand. And um, when I was 23 years old, my sweetheart died of cancer. He was 25. And for me, that was a um, pretty serious formative moment to have the painful privilege of being at his deathbed. And so it has been important to me to find stories like that one, or Mr. Death and the Red-Headed Woman, or Nadia the Willful, which all deal with um, not demonizing death. And finding ways to, if you're the survivor, talk about the loved one. Um, that
1: do, you like, do you like Duncan Williamson's story? Definitely not.
0: I don't think I know it.
1: Um, it's a Jack story. Uh huh. Um, Jack's mother is ill.
0: Where, he, he, where somehow the devil or death gets hung up in a sack or something and has gets, to be let out?
1: Yeah, he gets put in a nut.
0: Okay, I, did, I don't know and, that one.
1: And then he throws it out into the ocean. Mm-hmm. And he goes back home, and his mother's fine. And she doesn't understand why she's fine, but she sends him to the market to get some... Well, I think they go and get some chickens. And let's kill a chicken or get some eggs and make an omelet. The eggs don't break. The chicken can't be killed. Right. goes to the market. Nothing's dying. And she realises that something's amiss and she asks Jack what happened. And he says, well, I met Death and I tussled with him and he got smaller and smaller, put him in the nut and threw him out to sea. And so she says, you've got to find him because without Death there is no life. Without life there is no death. And so off he goes and he finds the nut and Death comes out and he sharpens, Jack sharpens his scythe and... Uh, Apologizes and death. Says, you learn an invaluable lesson, and I'll give your mother a few more years.
0: Ooh, I need to see that story. No, I don't know that story.
1: It's good. I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you. Lovely. It's a good one. It's a keeper. It is a keeper. So, um, how many performances do you think you do in a year in presentations?
0: That's really hard to say, especially given that I took seven years out to go to grad school, and I was a mother as opposed to a father when my children were young. So I don't—I'm not that big a, a road warrior. Okay. Hmm.
1: And. Uh, but this, you make your
0: living doing this,
1: though.
0: Such as I have a living at this point, yes. I mean, I was teaching at the University of Missouri mm-hmm. for four years after I got my PhD, and I was a grad instructor for part of that, so it both limited my ability to go on the road and put my focus in other places. So there have been times when, no, I wasn't making my living because I was doing this other thing that seemed like a good idea at the time. You know, Heather Forrest was one of the people who encouraged me and said, you know, there aren't that many people within our festival-based American storytelling revival cadre Mm -hmm. who are insiders who also give themselves a chance to get a scholarly eye on what's going on. So she was encouraging me when I began to think. Uh, And because I wasn't sure I wanted to do grad school, I went in as a post-baccalaureate student and took a few part-time classes for a year. so by the time I entered the master's program, I had a year of, the, of it already done. So, and then I con- went on into the Ph.D. program. And it was useful to spend time thinking, looking at ways to think deeply about what I had been doing. Uh, and my professors really got who I was. They knew I was a storyteller and a solo performer. But they suspected I could use those skills in ways that I might not do unless they told me I should. <laughs> did you? And I did. So my, um, the chair of the department, of course, they loved the fact that I was nominated for a Grammy while I was their grad student. Uh-huh. That didn't hurt. And so the chair of the department invited me, commissioned me, you might say, though there was no money exchange, to write an ensemble-driven play based on Making the Heart whole Again. Stories from a Wounded World, beginning with the stories that were on that. And so my master's project was the first half of that piece, so that other storytellers were embodying the tales. And then when after the master's degree, before I started officially with the PhD, or maybe it was a summer course, I wrote the second half, and they produced it. And it was really gorgeously done because the chair of the department is also a designer and so, you know, it was gorgeous. I think, you know, the play has some flaws but it was pretty amazing. That's good. And it was a whole pastiche of these stories being enacted by characters who were having those experiences. And, um, I wouldn't have done that if I'd just been sitting at home waiting for the phone to ring. Uh one of my professors is a, of a is a glassful, is a scholar of Susan Glasspel, who is an early 20th century playwright, Pulitzer prize-winning playwright, discovered Eugene O'Neill, thank you very much. So this uh, professor of mine introduced me to the work of this early 20th century playwright, who was a contemporary of my grandmother, and like my grandmother, went to college when women were not going to college. And as it happened, uh, she became this. Playwright to be, she wasn't a playwright yet, became a reporter for the Des Moines Daily News and covered the State House in 1900.
1: Wow.
0: And a murder trial. And when the woman was convicted of murdering her, everybody knew he was abusive husband, mm-hmm. Glassville stopped newspapering and went to Chicago briefly to grad school and started writing novels, plays, and short stories. And the second play she wrote is called Trifles, 1916 one-act play that is anthologized and performed to this day. And because she was this kind of smart, Mm -hmm. she knew more people would see a short story in print than see a play produced. So she rewrote it as a short story and published it as a jury of her peers in 1917, three years before women got the vote. So there were no jury
1: yeah.
0: with women on them.
1: Wow.
0: And uh, having introduced me to this wonderful work, and Glassville as a playwright had this theatrical convention of having an absent character. And in the case of Trifles, the absent character is the farm wife accused of the murder. So you never see her. You just hear about her and the murder of the husband. And so uh, one of the classes I took, I wrote a big notebook in case anybody was putting on the play. It would be a dramaturgical, what's called a protocol,
1: mm-hmm.
0: so that people living in the 21st century would know something about the world of that play, which is set in the early 20th century. And my professor said, now go write the a monologue in the voice of this woman we never see. And that was one of my favorite moments in grad school to write this piece, and now I perform it. And
1: that's, and that's called something about singing. I Sometimes think. I sing. Sometimes I mm-hmm. sing,
0: right. So I had all of these remarkable opportunities. I took a playwriting class. I wrote a 10-minute play. It ended up at the National 10-Minute Play Festival at the Kennedy Center. It's like, well, okay, this is fun. <laughs> I'm the only one who's 60 here, but hey, you know... <laughs> Whoopie doo! So there were these remarkable opportunities to expand and explore. And that was the great value of grad school. Certainly, getting a PhD in your early 60s does not put you high on the job in you know, a market yeah. scale. And being outside your profession for seven years doesn't do much to get you gigs either. I
1: guess not. Oops. Oops. But you're doing other things, so that's that's good. What advice would you give to someone who was starting on, or was thinking about starting on the career path of being a a traditional oral storyteller?
0: Well, first of all, I would say that unless you grew up in an oral culture, you're not a traditional oral storyteller. I'm not a traditional oral storyteller. I tell traditional stories, but I am a hybrid. I grew up in a very literature heavy culture. Even Donald Davis is a hybrid. Yes. Yeah. But he had grandparents who were truly oral culture people. Mm. I didn't have that. I had book learning people, mm. you know, back as many generations as I knew. So um, I would say if you are interested in telling oral tradition stories, get right to it because My people live to their 90s, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: okay? But 90 years isn't long enough to learn how to be human if you don't have some help.
1: Yeah.
0: So for me, the treasure of these stories is that they take you beyond the limitation of your understanding, your lived experience, your ways of knowing, and invite you into all the kaleidoscopic ways there are to be human beings... And that many of the stories come from people who actually know how to live interdependently with the world. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing about growing up an American child that tells me how to live interdependently in this world. So I count on the oral tradition stories and the the oral storytellers Mm -hmm. and the still oral cultures to say... Slow down. Yeah. You see that bee? If you don't take care of that bee, you're not going to eat.
1: Yeah.
0: Let's talk about why that is. You know, the beginning of braiding sweetgrass, the the book by. Let's think of her name and then we'll I'll, I'll stop. But she talks about being an indigenous person and a botanist. So. When she studied as a scientist, she was sort of asked to unlearn what she knew about the natural world as an indigenous person who lived in it. And then she had to sort of go back and reclaim that part of herself, too. Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants, Robin Wall Kimmerer. She talks about how, for her people, the origin story is that a woman falls from heaven clutching a bag of seeds, and the animals see her falling in the catcher. And because of that, she didn't break. And she thanks them by planting the seeds and sharing what's in the sack. Now, when you have an origin story that sounds like that, and it has to butt up against some newcomers whose origin story is, we got chased out of the garden, but we were told we were in charge. <laughs> yeah. you have America yeah. today in which we must grasp at every tiny bit of wisdom that may save us in our hurry to finish our time on the planet she gonna shrug us off she's going to start again she says I got roaches waiting to take your apartment you know, I got people waiting to take the spy you messing up we'll, we'll get on without you just get go on just get along you yeah. go along yeah.
1: if, if there was a storyteller that you could swap stories with and, and, and glean information from who would that be? Hmm. What do you
0: think? Well, I would have loved to have had that conversation with Joan Aiken. Um, it would have been wonderful to be one of the people smart enough to go meet Duncan Williamson.
1: Yes.
0: <laughs> I wouldn't. Um, I've been trying to find out where Maggie Purse is. Does anybody know if Maggie, Maggie Purse is still with us? Um, I love sitting next to Dovey Thomason.
1: Yes.
0: She's a gem. She,
1: she's...
0: She's a gem. She's amazing. I said to her, I was working on my key, keynote for the Mesa the conference that was in Mesa, Arizona, and I said, America doesn't do grief. And she looked at me and she said, some Americans do nothing but grief. And I said, okay, I got I to readjust that statement. I say the dominant culture doesn't do grief. And so we'd rather fight a war for 15, 16, 17 years than admit that our hearts were broken and that there might be something we might need to look at about ourselves. <laughs> so um, who's, who's gone? I, I would love to sit down and talk to the Egyptian storyteller who told last year at the festival.
1: Oh, yes. She was incredible. Yes. I actually got to talk to her afterwards. We, were, we hung out a little bit. Nice. There was a four of us. And yes, she was very on the money.
0: Yes. Very yeah. I loved spending time in the UK, getting to hear story and all its different I got to go to the Crick Crack Club, I got to go to Beyond the Borders, I got to tell the festival at the Edge, I you know, I got to go see Liz Weir and the Antrim Coast. I got to meet some people in Dublin. It was like, boy, this is a great education. Yeah. And they're telling the stories I care
1: about. Yeah, it's, I want to get back over and do a tour of storytelling there and meet a lot of storytellers.
0: Yeah. Why don't we get people together and we lead the tour and make it happen for ourselves and others?
1: We could do that. i be <laughs> Well, Mulberry, I want to thank you very much indeed for spending all this time chatting with me, telling about your, your life and your experience as a storyteller. And all the other things that you've done and and, and experienced. I'd also like to thank Andy Davis. Yes, <laughs> who has given us this opportunity to, to get together and, and do this. Um,
0: and here. let us chase him out of his own house.
1: This interview, yeah, we did. We chased him out of his own house. The thank World you. Fellowship Centre here in Albany, New Hampshire. So there you have it. A short time with Milbury Birch, the kind crone as she calls herself. I have to give another shout-out to Andrea Walsh and Andy Davis for allowing me to gate-crash with Milbury at the World Fellowship Centre in Albany, New Hampshire. Very gracious of them. Milbury was a trooper, as she came from one performance to do this and then left to do another. And she was not in tip-top health. So massive thanks to Milbury. You can find her stuff on her website, aptly named KindCrone.com. That's K-I-N-D... C-R-O-N-E dot com. She is one of the kindest and wisest and one of the funniest women I have met. I hope you, my listeners, enjoyed the conversation as much as I did and learned as much about the art and the ways to look at it as I did. Creating this show is very much a labour of love. To help keep this podcast going and to help create more, please consider making a donation. You can do this either through my website, simonbrooksstoryteller.com or my Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks. A couple of dollars a month, a single donation. If you like a particular episode, will all help me reach out further and create more of these conversations. If you can, I know you can, leave a review on Stitcher or wherever else you find this episode. It helps not just me, but it helps others find this podcast. Please jump on the interwebs and find out more about my guests. Follow them and me if you like. All the guests are amazing storytellers, which is why I sit down with them. What was your favourite quote? Is there someone who is a professional teller of the old tales who you have not heard here that you think I should reach out to? Please let me know. Also, no, I have potential dates to record with one, two, three, maybe 12 or 13 others. But maybe a name has slipped past me. Thanks for listening. i really appreciate your support. Now, please, if you could, go write a nice review. <laughs> a huge thanks out. Thanks out? A huge <laughs> shout out. A huge thanks to those who have helped already. I'd like to give thanks to my Patreons. Ted Parkhurst, Claire Miller, Chris Riddle, Eleanor Benjamin, Elisa Permain, Harvey Halbrun, Hope Lewis, Marek Bennett, Pat Spaulding, Laura Packer, and Rachel Ann Harding. Thank you so much. I really appreciate what you do. Until next time, cheers.